Welcome to La Trobe University's Clever Conversations. This episode from our Bold Thinking series explores a field that has transformed so many lives. Beyond restoring personal freedom, today's prosthetics have the power to enhance and redesign the human experience for people with limb loss. Prosthetic art curator and amputee Priscilla Sutton brings her own insights and much humour to the conversation. She's joined by Associate Professor in Prosthetics and Orthotics at La Trobe University, Michael Dillon. We also hear from Mandy McCracken, the co-founder of the Quad Squad, an international support group for quadruple amputees like her. Completing the panel is La Trobe alumna and senior clinician at ProMotion Prosthetics, Monique Vandenboom. This discussion is facilitated by journalist Francis Leach. Good evening, everybody, and welcome here to the NGV for tonight's discussion. My name's Francis Leach. Thank you to, to Russell Hoy for the introduction, uh, and thank you for being here. The format for the Bold Thinking series is an hour of discussion with our panellists, and then we'll take half an hour of questions from the floor afterwards. There's some strict rules around that too. You can ask one question and a follow-up, no statements. This is not a place for, uh, for a campaigning from the floor. It is about discussion, listening, and learning. <laughs> So let's start with what is everybody's story up here that has had to come to terms with living as an amputee. And Priscilla, I'll start with you. Um, not many people have had to face the decision you had to face, but you said it was the best decision of your life. Tell us your journey to that decision. I guess uh, for me, I was born without the, my fibula, so the outer bone between your knee and your ankle. Um, my leg was quite thin um, because of that. And when I was born, my, my foot was facing up and it was um, broken and fused to face down. And I had worn orthopedic boots um, up until the age of 26. And, um, and it was when I was living in Tokyo and I was just experiencing such chronic pain. And I like to describe it as um, you have muscle pain and bone pain. And for me, I was experiencing bone pain. So when you get to that point in the day that your bones start hurting, for me, that just put a stop and I, that was it for the day. So wherever I was, I would find a taxi and go home. Um, and once I chose to amputate my leg, uh, my life completely changed. And now, if I'm a bit tired, um, say I'm in the supermarket and I'm a bit worn out, I can go outside, sit down, have a coffee, pop my leg off, just like anybody with some shoes that are annoying them, and I can recover because it's more of a muscular pain now if I experience any at all. And, uh, and I feel really lucky. So for me, it was the best decision of my life because it opened, it, uh, opened up the world for me. I have less physical restrictions. Um, and of course, we all know anybody who's experienced chronic pain, the impact that can have on your mental health as well. So for me, um, it was the best decision of my life. So even on the days that might be a bit harder, it was still a great thing to do. So in a way, what you're describing there was before the operation, your injury or your problem with your leg actually defined your entire experience because it was governed by that. When it was too much, you had to stop. It was the, the universe in which you lived. Uh, and you were liberated from your leg mm -hmm. in a way that maybe when people presume and look at you would not know. No, there's always an assumption yeah. of pity, actually, when you see amputees, which is really heartbreaking. And people say, I'm, oh, I'm so sorry. And I think, oh, I'm not. You should see what I had before. It was pretty <laughs> rubbish. I mean, bless my old leg. I, I love her dearly. And um, we had a great relationship. And she got me through 26 years of my life. And I'll always remember her fondly. But she's retired. OK, so. you led me down this path. <laughs> we have to tell the story now that you did have a relationship with your 
your leg and uh, you also um, had a very special goodbye to your leg. Yes. Do you want to tell people what you did? So in the lead up to my surgery, so when, when you have elective surgery like this, you, you don't just go into the doctor and say, right, chop it off today, get rid of it. It's a long process and it's through public health system and, and there's lots of paperwork and appointments and decisions and consultations and then you go on a wait list and we're pretty lucky in Australia, the wait list isn't too long um, in, in most places and um, when I finally got the letter to say your surgery's in three weeks, of course I started to panic because it's not like cutting your hair off, it doesn't grow back. And even though you know it's the right decision, you do start to doubt yourself a bit. So I decided to go to uh, some therapy. I went to a psychologist who also did some hypnotherapy. And I'm a pretty sceptical person, but I went in with a really open mind um, because she specialised in relaxation. So... I did this session with her and it was called Talking to Your Body. And I sat back and I kind of um, went through this whole process of a conversation with my body, which I know sounds a bit hippy-dippy and people think it's strange, but I, I was not there. I was watching myself and listening to myself. I was absolutely bawling. I had tears coming down. Everything was just drenched. And in that conversation with my body, my leg told me that she was angry and sad because I was chopping her off and throwing her away after everything we had been through. And that experience led me to um, the decision to cremate my leg when it was amputated. So I went back to my doctor and said, um, I'd like to cremate my leg. And he didn't know if they were allowed to do that. So um, he rang the legal unit of the hospital and um, said to the lawyer, you know, I've um, got this young woman, she's about to have her leg amputated and she'd like to cremate it, are we allowed to do that? And the lawyer said, what is she effing nuts? <laughs> and he said, no, and she's here and you're on speakerphone. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we all laughed and I think the lawyer was a bit freaked out and panicked. Um, and we were allowed to do it, but there were some rules around it. My leg had to be collected within an hour of surgery and all of this stuff. Otherwise, I'd be charged morgue fees because that's how Queensland Health is. And um, bless them. And, um, and so on the day I was getting, you know, I was in the anaesthetist room and I was getting all the drugs and my surgeon came in and he said, hey, Priscilla, have you called your funeral home? And I said, yeah, yeah, it's all good. Every, everyone's calling, it's all... And he walked out and everyone was like, what the hell was that? The guy who's about to amputate your leg is making sure you've organised your funeral. Um, but all around, it was a really great experience for me. Um, the funeral home, when I rang to get a quote, thought it was a, a prank call. Because <laughs> they said I wanted to know how much it would cost. Because what if it was really expensive and I couldn't afford it? So, and, and they said, we don't know, we haven't had that before. And I said, well, it's no bigger than a cat how much would you charge to cremate a cat? And so we settled on the price of a cat, which at the time was like a couple hundred bucks. Um, and so they collected my leg and then I had, to, well, I had to go in and fill out paperwork and I still have it. And it, instead of deceased person's name, it's leg of Priscilla. And it was all very funny. But, um, and it's a great story that I'll tell forever, but um, it was actually the most beautiful form of closure because I still have my leg in ashes. And, um, and I know what happened to her, and uh, she can forever be with me, and I'll always be grateful of the 26 years of hard work that she gave me. Mandy, your experience is the, the reverse of that, isn't it? Because, well, uh, Priscilla's was um, a moment of liberation, yours was a moment of deep trauma uh, yeah. that came, whereas Priscilla had, to had time to consider 
the consequences and, and, just, and, and think about and have a relationship with her leg, uh, you weren't afforded any of that. No, my, uh, my introduction to amputation was I woke up after a coma, uh, a 10-day coma, to discover that my hands and feet had died and had turned black. So, yeah, there was no choice involved with me. Um, I, I unfortunately got um, sepsis through a blood infection and, yeah, it was, it was the other end of the stick, yeah. So, um, I didn't have any turning back. I didn't have any fun thing. Well, I mean, you know, there's always great stories in the amputee world, that's for sure, but, um, yeah, it was quite different. For, for both of you, um, it was about reimagining or coming to terms with a different way to live and a different sense of self. Hmm. How long did that take for you to come to terms with? Or are you still coming ah, to terms with it? Well, I am still coming to terms with it all. Um, again, a great psych got me through all this. And I think anybody who goes through something as traumatic as losing all four limbs um, without a psychologist is mad out there. <laughs> Anyone, I, and I do know quite a few amputees... Um, multiple limb amputees that believe that they can do it without um, psychological assistance, and I think you're, you're insane. What was the question? Oh, just, <laughs> how it changes your sense of self and the way that you, you'd imagined your, your relationship with your body and who you were as you a person. You know what was really interesting? So I spent so much time in, in a bed, um, and then when I got out of the bed, I was in a wheelchair, and then, you know, it was months until I got given legs to stand up on. So I'd actually never seen myself without my limbs because I could never stand in front of a mirror. I could only ever see from this up, in, this high up in front of a mirror in a hospital. So um, I never actually had a sense of what I looked like without limbs. And the fortunate part was is I had a lovely prosthetist who gave me limbs. And you know, I stood up in front of a mirror and I was all sort of put back together again. So um, probably the first time that I saw myself without limbs, I was in a dress shop. Um, we had a dinner dance to go to and I needed an outfit. And so my husband pulled me apart literally in a dressing shop and put, me, put a dress on me and stood me in front of a mirror and I didn't have my arms on. And I've gone, hang on a tick, this looks really weird. And so I went and found my prosthetic arms and I put them back on again and went, oh, there you go, we're, we're back together again. So it's been quite a process and I saw Priscilla on the telly recently and you were talking about, you know, showing your medal. And up until that time, I'd had covers on my legs that looked like natural legs. So, you know, for me to now come around with, with this look is actually a really big mental step that's actually only been in the last couple of months. Michael, when we talk about the journey that both Priscilla and Mandy have been on, and it would have been very different generations ago, but is the medical profession and the, uh, the industry around it that supports people who are living with amputation getting better at understanding the relationship between uh, replacing their limbs and the person, the, the holistic nature of the experience they're going through? Yeah, I, I, I think absolutely. I think um, uh, there's been a lot of research done then looking at um, the, certainly the experience of, of making decisions about amputation surgery, and I think um, the difference in uh, Priscilla's and Mandy's stories really speaks to the importance of um, or, or the great opportunity that's there if you can make that um, an informed choice. And I think um, particularly when people have the capacity to make uh, that sort of informed choice, then they often feel um, very different about uh, what the outcome might be. Um, and I think 
then um, when we talk with people about those experiences, absolutely, um, how people come to terms with uh, the way they feel about their prosthesis. Um, I think Mandy's uh, story really says it all in terms of uh, being able to um, imagine yourself uh, as a prosthesis user and it feels a part of yourself and when it's not there, it's, it feels uh, weird. It feels a bit strange. I, I think Mandy sums up much better than I can. But traditionally, did, uh, did surgeons lead? Or did they feel it was their role as experts to tell uh, amputees what they needed? And is, is that relationship, is that power balance changing? Yeah, that paternalistic relationship is, is absolutely changing. Um, uh, but, but it's a slow process. Um, certainly um, in our experiences of people where we've interviewed people about their experience of losing a limb, um, people often describe that the choice was made for them, mm. that um, you know, they, they come in and there's a ward round and a surgeon comes in or a doctor comes in and says, well, you know, this, isn't, this ulcer isn't healing or this gangrene isn't going to resolve, so we've booked you in for some surgery. Uh, and uh, sort of walk out and move on to the next person in the next ward, um, you know, with, without really a, a conversation. Um, and I think the, the thing that we've gathered from talking with people is the thing that they really value most is a meaningful conversation. Um, and I think in lots of other areas of healthcare, um, people do that much better. So certainly in um, like cancer treatment, uh, where people have access often to genetic counsellors, to so say particularly for things like breast cancer treatment. Um, those studies absolutely look um, and describe the value of that meaningful conversation. And sometimes it's not even in the here and now, sometimes it's just having some idea about what's down the, down the road. And even if you can't um, predict for a person whether there are going to be complications down the road or what those complications might be, just knowing that the path ahead might look a little bumpy um, often helps prepare people and, and when people have that preparation, they often experience much less depression and anxiety um, down the track. So. Well, in, in the design and, um, and the evolution of prosthetics, and we saw the footage of the World War I soldiers coming home and, uh, and what their experience was, you look at the, the, the change now, uh, uh, do you think that the technology is empowering people to make better choices, the fact that we've come so far, particularly for, for people, but is cost the barrier to actually having what you want? Yeah, a couple of good questions. So, I, definitely, I mean, I wasn't a prosthetist back in the war, the war days, but um, definitely things have changed drastically since then. And even in the 15, 20 years that I've been within the prosthetic um, field, I've seen a massive shift in people's um, prosthetic users' um, desire of what they want that prosthetic limb to look like. And it's so give of, us a sense of that. What, what, what so it used to be very much, like Mandy said, wanted it, you know, to look like her leg you know, shaped and colour matched and very important to be symmetrical and um, whereas I think in more recent times there's been a real shift in what wearing a prosthetic limb means and the self-image part of it that, that you know, is behind that. Um, people's, uh, you know, opinion of what their self-image is has shifted, I think, and it doesn't have to be that their prosthetic leg looks exactly like their other leg or what their leg was before. So there's definitely been a big shift. And I think that, um, yeah, what's driving that? I think probably exposure, you know, exhibitions um, that are put on and people out there wearing prosthetic limbs that have, you know, funky 3D printed covers or cosmetic covers or even just without any covers so that you see what the, you know, the actual components. Um, and the more robotic look, that's been accepted a lot more. And so I think that just, you know, there's a momentum behind that because people are proud and, and they sort of show it off and, and that gets um, collected by other prosthetic users 
Um, and definitely the introduction of new technology helps because the new technology is often so functional that it's not cosmetic anymore. And so in order to get that function, people just embrace the fact that it looks pretty cool and it works really well. Well, I'll talk about cost in a while because I think that falls into the issue of the NDIS and a few other major issues that we're going to discuss. But I am interested in the changing nature and aesthetic of prosthetics. And, and uh, Monique talked about what she's seen in her time in, in the industry and the whole notion of show your metal and the idea that rather than trying to blend in and be like everyone else, you can wear your prosthetic as a statement of your experience, of who you, who you are through your experience. And yes, this is who I am. Is that something that you came naturally to, Priscilla, or did you also have to... Were you, were you trying to you know, blend in before you decided to wear your art on your, on your prosthesis? Well, having had a, leg that never, a right leg that never looked like my left leg, when I first started wearing prosthetics, I was obsessed with having a leg that looked like my left <laughs> leg. So I was all about the fake skin and the shape and everything like that, and wearing tights, oh my God. Tights, <laughs> if you think about tights on a, on a pole leg, it looks the same on a leg without a fibula, it's just baggy, it doesn't work. So I was really excited about um, that shape, and, uh, and I had all of these skins that, they, they were rubbish, they just would, as soon as they started to tear, it looked like a dog had chewed it, and I'd be like, well, I don't feel as proud with my leg, and then I started to get more active as well, because I couldn't do a lot of exercise previously, and so then I realised, actually, it's a bit heavy and clunky, this, all this fake skin and the shape, so I decided, and this was in 2010, um, to get a colourful leg, and I was really inspired by a little girl in my prosthetic clinic. Um, young Zoe was five years old and sitting next to me for a fitting, and and um, she was just renowned for having really bright, beautiful legs. And she was holding court with all these grown-ups around her who were waiting to hear what her next leg would look like. And she made the big announcement, this tiny girl with all these grown-ups, and she said, Dora the Explorer. And they all went, no problem. And I'm like, I want a Dora leg. How do I do this? <laughs> and so I, I remember this experience so well because I, I went to Spotlight, I chose a piece of fabric, and for five bucks, it completely changed my life. I'm sure that the clinic were having bets how long I would last with a pole leg that was polka dot. Um, but it completely changed me. And that experience, I didn't... It's not just... Um, what did it change for you? What, what You say it changed you. What did it change for you? So for me... Um, there was the physical element of it where it's actually lighter to wear um, what I just dub a pole leg. So it's much lighter, more comfortable in lots of different ways. Um, but also, if my favourite example is walking into a supermarket. Mm -hmm. And it used to be little kids would see me and say to their mum, like, hey, mum, look at that lady's fake leg. And the kid, you know, the mum would grab their elbow and say, shut up, don't say anything, don't stare. And it would be really awkward. And instead, the first time I walked into a supermarket wearing a polka dot leg, this little girl in a polka dot dress was like holding it, looking at me and couldn't articulate, your leg matches my dress and this is really weird. <laughs> and instead of the parent pulling her away, they were like, hey, your leg's beautiful. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> and it was this moment of like my aha moment where I went, wow, five bucks just completely changed the public's, like a stranger's perception of me. The pity went away and the fear and the taboo, and instead of that, it was appreciation and it was colour. 
and it was it was just this whole new moment and then I, I have never looked back and now I have a pole leg under this and this is a, a cover that is just held on by magnets yeah. that I can pull off. Um, so my pole leg has lovely fabric on it and then I have this and there's magnets embedded in the top and then I can put that on when I want to, which is pretty cool. And I upped the ante from Spotlight and now an amazing <laughs> um, couple of artists from America, Mark Ryden and Marion Peck, um, keep me in artwork because they love this and this is one of Marion Peck's works, Young Lord Oliver. Um, and this was just a dream that I had because it used to be when I started doing this that it had to be two legs. You had to have a full shape and a pole leg and that was kind of it 10 years ago. And... Um, and, and I asked my prosthetist to make my dream come true. Um, I love Mandy. I know, they're so elegant. So beautiful. And I, for me, I kind of, because the 3D printing ones I love so much and they're so... Expensive. They're expensive. <laughs> so is this one. It's, it's a very expensive hobby, isn't it? Um, yeah. But it's, I, what I really wanted was that full shape for wearing tights. Yep. It's, and, it, and you have to, and this is a big part of the choice and control and those conversations, is prosthetists actually having a conversation with their clients. Because it's not about what we're given, it's about what we want. Yep. And it's about the activity levels, it's about aesthetics, what clothes do you want to wear. Um, for some men it might be, and women as well, um, wearing jeans, it's about filling out the, the pant leg. Um, and for me it's about wearing the tights. So... Uh, and that, for me, was my priority with my cosmetics. So, yeah. Uh, Can I just... Yes, uh, I, was, um, I couldn't help but notice in the way that you told parts of that story that it sounds like when you had a prosthesis with a cover and it's a bit ratty and, mm. and falling apart, that actually the way you described it, it sounded like you were embarrassed. Yeah. And then, you know, as you uh, sort of, I guess, took ownership of what you wanted your prosthesis to look like and had more control, it, that, that tone really disappeared. Is that sort of it true does. to that experience? Yeah, and for me, when I had my original leg as well, I lived in jeans and boots. I very much hid my body. Um, and then when I um, first had a prosthetic, it was all about blending in and having that fake skin. And for some reason now, my attitude has completely changed. So colour changed other people's perceptions, but also my own perception of myself. It helped me realise that you, there's opportunity in adversity, embracing your body um, and, you know, letting your life and your personality shine through your accessories, which is what we do with necklaces and earrings and jumpers and shirts and dresses. And I can do that with my leg. So it completely changed that. And I was really lucky to have the support of clinicians who supported that, yeah. which was really great. Can I, can I add to that? Yeah. One thing with the rattiness... Mm. Like, the two of us do a lot of public speaking. You know, when you're getting up in front of a crowd and you're wearing a cover that has been torn to shreds, you can't clean it up. Like, you know, once, once you, your skins and things get worn and used up, there's no sort of... You can't get the scrub out and clean it up or a layer of nail polish doesn't really do much when your fingers are literally splitting <laughs> apart. And do you know what we need to do is draw a little dog that's been biting it <laughs> and, and turn it into an artwork. It into but it is a thing. It's, yeah. Yeah. Um, and they're becoming more durable and when they're removable, yeah. even better. Yeah. Were yeah. you a show your metal person or did you... No, no, this, this is my first <laughs> set. Yeah. Yeah. First time really? I've worn heels in six years. Wow. Yeah. Um, 
No, as I said, I had these covers, and then I would put a pair of lace-up sneakers on because they're beautiful to walk in. Yeah. Um, but it, it would ruin your ankle, so I, I had to live in my white lace-up sneakers because I could never take my sneakers off because my ankles were mangled. So Did you also feel um, because if you um, you did set up a network and you've done this incredible job in connecting people who have had like experiences, but when you were first in your situation, did you feel not empowered to ask as if you should be grateful that you were alive at all and therefore... Well, you get given one set of legs. That's what I mean, yeah, and, and you should and be grateful skins, that you've got them. The skins are $800 for a single skin, am I right? I'm right. Give or take. Like, you can't turn around and go, oh, I've put a hole in them, can I have another set, please? You know, Medicare's lovely and looks after us, but that's probably a bit rich to ask for a second set of skins when you've only had them for a week and you've already ruined them. So, yeah, it's, you, you take what you've given and it, if it's not great, you sort of tend to just keep your mouth shut. And so, so how did you get to the point where you said, I needed to ex meet and talk to people who've had like experiences and, and how did you start building that network? Uh, so, for me, um, I was visited by um, people from Limbs for Life, which was brilliant. Yep. And um, I did actually have a quadruple amputee come and visit me in, in hospital when I was incredibly drugged up and didn't really remember much. But um, when I came out of hospital, um, another quadruple amputee, Matthew Ames, had been on TV and he's in Brisbane. And, you know, through the wonders of social media, we all found each other. And we organised to catch up at a pub when we were up in Queensland. And he happened to bring another quadruple amputee that he knew, um, Corinne Barrett. And we sat in this pub with our family, our you know, husbands and wives and our children. And finally, I had found someone who had lived exactly the same thing I'd just been through. You know, they How had, did that feel at that moment? Oh, I, just, I had a thousand and one questions bouncing around in my head. Yeah. How did you do this? What happened when that happened? You know, um, Rod sat there and said, you know, how many lasagnas did you get? And we win. We got seven lasagnas at one stage. And, <laughs> you know, to be able to turn around and have that conversation with someone who understands when you're walking down the street and a stranger shoves $50 in your hand, like, just because they feel sorry for you. Like, how do you process that? And the exact same thing had happened to them. So we just, we connected through social media and now we've got, today it was 210 quadruple amputees around the world, which is nuts. Like... You know, it's, it's a club. We're quite a club. Um, but we share, you know, how do you do your bra up? How do you put your hair up? Um, how do you brush your teeth? Um, Things you would otherwise have to try and work out on your own. Yeah, and, you know, it, it goes beyond what you learn from an OT in a hospital. You know, this, OTs in hospitals are great. They teach you how to eat and how to wipe your bum. And they send you on your merry way. Um, but, you know, how do you... Oh, get money out of an ATM. Mm. You know, when you're doing this, how do you get money out of an ATM? Um, I've now learnt that I just bring children with me. <laughs> <laughs> they do that as well. Yeah, all my kids know my <laughs> PIN numbers. Um, That's going to be dangerous later on, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but the value in, in having somebody else who's living exactly the same scenario is incredible. Uh, Monique, just on that, as people do connect and social media now allows people to share their experiences probably more widely than ever before, mm. is that having an impact in the world of design and manufacture as well as, as people on that side of the experience get to understand more and people advocating more loudly for what they want rather than yeah. what they have been told they need to have? Yeah, definitely. I think in, in two ways that I can think of. One would be it, it's making an impact on... Um, 
clients advocating for themselves and, and being very vocal about what they want because I've seen this thing on Instagram and I want yeah. a leg that looks like that. I want which, the Dora Explorer leg. Which, I want it now. <laughs> which sometimes is great, sometimes is a little frustrating yeah. and, and especially with media too, you know, there's a lot of stories that are out there that um, maybe skirt around what the act, you know, whether or not it's actually commercially available, but it just seems like it is. So I don't like having the conversations with clients that actually, yeah, that hand that you've seen doing this, it's not actually available yet. Like it's it's a prototype and, you know, but hopefully in the future. So there's that part of it. So the exposure online is massive and it's definitely um, changing clients, um, yeah, them being more vocal about what they want, which I think is great. Um, but then, is it changing the design and the manufacture of um, products? Probably. I mean, I think that um, clients are, again, being more vocal about what they want. I think that suppliers and R&D departments and things like that are probably listening a lot more because it's easier to hear what they're saying online and, you know, from feedback and things like that. So I'd hope that they listen and, and then take that into account in their design of componentry. And Michael, that exposure to new technologies and the availability of, of progress with prosthesis, it's driving a consumer demand that maybe can't be met by a regulated industry that needs to deliver under a certain set of parameters, you know, that, that might take a little longer to get to where it needs to be. Yeah, um, I, I think the, for me the thing that's sort of really come out of the bit Monique said is that idea that, you know, you've got a consumer-driven demand and I think um, if we come back to that early idea that the way we, we provided a lot of prosthetic care was very paternalistic. So, you know, here's, here's a, a person and they have a baloney amputation and here's what a baloney prosthesis looks like and it's got one of three feet and it's going to look like this and, and that's what you'll have. Mm. Um, I think uh, increasingly what we've seen is people, um, is we've seen a number of very innovative startups then really take um, control of trying to change that experience for people and I think... Um, uh, there's a, a, a company in the UK, a startup, um, who've really done great work looking at how you design uh, 3D printed uh, parts for, for a prosthesis um, and parts that can then absolutely be tailor-made to a person's individual wishes. Um, and I think uh, going forward, the, the companies that can really uh, crack that, that can really do a good job of um, working with individual clients to figure out what it is that they want and can figure out how you deliver that um, will be the companies who I think are really um, continue to be successful into the future. Um, so I think gone are the days of that paternalistic, you know, you need a prosthesis and here's what, here's what it is that you'll have. Is the regulatory framework that's currently in place holding that back? Um, no, I don't believe so. Um, I, I think for people who need a prosthesis, the, the regulatory framework is, is, actually, is, is in place for that. Um, I think people have um, you know, access to, a, um, to a, funded, you know, a, a funded prosthetic service through the NDIS, you know, notwithstanding some of the challenges of um, how you access that system. Um, uh, you know, we have uh, clinicians who are um, trained and educated and regulated to provide those sorts of services. Um, and the technologies that sit behind that, the, the manufacturing parts of that, um, like the 3D printing, are absolutely there to support the provision of a, of a, a clinical service. Um, so I, I think in an, in an environment that's well regulated, absolutely it can work really well. Uh, the experience of the NDIS, there's so many stories. We held a whole Bold Thinking Series event on the NDIS about 18 months ago. It was incredible, incredibly well attended and uh, the range of experiences was extraordinary. 
and everybody has their own story. So I want to hear your stories. Mandy, where are you at with the um, NDIS? Oh. <laughs> do you want, do you want? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm getting a, a lot of support at home to do my dishes and clean the garden and um, take me to wherever I'd like to go and have a carer come with me. I've got as much support as I could possibly imagine with that. Um, I've been in a hook for a month now because my right hand uh, has died and I need a new set of hands, like this hand is, is due to be replaced. Um, so my, my hands are 21 grand for a set of two and I've been funded $1,700. So I don't quite know how this is going to work. There's a lot of reports that have been written by my prosthetist and um, I think that now needs to be taken up levels of assessment teams and all sorts of things. So, um, yeah, I, I so don't... So yours is a story of frustration with the NDIS. I think it's more that nobody quite understands how to work it. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say it's frustration because I'm, I'm yet to be denied it. Um, just everyone around me doesn't quite know to how, how to ensure that my hands will be available as soon as possible. So, you, you, from, a, you know, from the other side of the, of the story, the clinician side, and, and the service delivery is a problem across the whole sector. And I hear lots of stories yeah. in, in our experience that the, the huge demand for the NDIS... Uh, means that there aren't clinicians and, and therapists for a whole range of people's experiences because just we haven't trained enough people to cope with the demand. Mm. Is that a similar thing that we're seeing here in, in uh, the experience of people who need prosthesis? Yeah, I don't think it necessarily comes down to there being a lack of clinicians available. I think there's a lack of um, people within the NDIS who are kind of at the pivotal point of needing to make the decision in order to allow funding to be provided to Mandy. Um, they're, they're in a very, very important, serious position um, and a lot of the times we're finding that the communication or the understanding, I suppose, that interpretation of my job as a clinician is to put a case forward on Mandy's or the user's behalf um, to say these, this is our full assessment, this is what we need um, for Mandy in order for her to achieve... Goal X, Y, Z. So is it also an, uh, an extension of what we talked about before, that the people making those decisions have not got a sophisticated understanding of what Mandy's or Priscilla's Spot needs on. are? Spot like on. the simple things like doing the ATM Spot. or putting a bra on. That, that's Spot on. So that's and even you, what I'm finding is that even you're putting those things, and they're set up, NDIS is very good, they're setting up things in that it's very um, goal-driven, goal-orientated, so... Mandy could have put, so I'm using you directly as an example, <laughs> Mandy could have used that as, as a very specific goal. I want to be able to go to an ATM and get money out myself. And so my job as a clinician is to try and say, okay, well, what prosthetic devices are going to allow Mandy to be able to do that? And then on the other, the, the other side of the, um, is what other therapies does, or what other supports does Mandy need in order to be able to achieve that, to learn how to use that device in order to be able to do that particular task. And I think what's happening is that we can do a... I feel like I do a very good job in presenting that case forward to the NDIS, but whoever is sitting on the other side of the desk picking up that piece of paper who probably doesn't know anything about prosthetics or anything about disability, maybe, um, gets to make that decision and apply funding based on their interpretation of it. So it's a so lottery. It's, it's a lot... Oh, it's a, the inconsistencies mm. are frustrating. Yep. 
Has that been your yep. experience, Priscilla? Uh, definitely. Um, I, I have a love-hate relationship with the NDIS. <laughs> I think that it's got incredible potential to transform um, 20% of Australians' lives. Like, well, you know, 20% of people Profound. live with disability, right? Yeah. So, at the very core of it, uh, um, like Monique was saying, like the planners and the, the turnover of staff is actually one of the biggest problems. Um, so you can't build a relationship with someone. It who, can be who really hard. Yeah. 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 And so building that relationship um, with somebody over a period of years is actually really difficult because you're in this for life and they might be in it for a year or two and move on, um, which is absolutely their right, but you're still sitting there and um, sometimes empty-handed. Um, but I would say for people who are amputees, if you're not getting the technology that you and your clinician think, make sure you engage with organisations like Limbs for Life because they can also help advocate on your behalf and guide you through that. The biggest thing you need to do is advocate and if you don't feel... Um, strong enough or confident enough to advocate for yourself, you need to reach out to an organisation that can help yeah. you. Um, because I, I've had conversations, like people call me, I have no idea who they are. Um, none of what they tell me makes sense when they ring up, but they've got my file, my life story. And some of the stuff that goes into your plan is incredibly personal. Mm -hmm. And there's this stranger on the phone saying, can you explain how a leg works? And I'm like, can you? <laughs> because this is embarrassing. You're about to sign off on mm. how... So it's disempowering all over again, How much, it? yeah. So luckily for me, I can have that conversation and explain components and why I need this and why I've asked for this particular foot and this, 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 this. And there's not enough people who can do that. And I can do that because of being an amputee for a long time but all of the other work that I've done has taught me about actual prosthetics and technology. So, and I really, my heart goes out to anybody else who gets that call that can't have that conversation because yeah. they might not be at the same point that I am at the end of that call to be really confident that they're yeah. going to get what's been requested. And Michael, this is the a wider view of the NDIS, but it certainly applies to this situation that advocacy is everything. And in that sense, the, the whole institution, the NDIS, is, is purpose-built for middle-class English-speaking uh, predominantly Anglo people who can navigate bureaucracy, can understand the language, have good advocacy skills. If you're outside of that parameters, if you're English as a second language, socioeconomically challenged, profoundly disabled and you can't advocate personally for yourself or have somebody who can do all those things, you're starting from a long way back. You've absolutely hit it on the head. Um, uh, I think it's a real challenge and then uh, part of that challenge doesn't just stem from the people, um, say, who are... Um, assessing claims within or requests within the NDOs, but it comes right back to the people um, who are facilitating conversations about planning um, and, and how, how meaningfully can people facilitate conversations about what your needs might be um, in a workforce that's largely untrained in, uh, in disability. Um, so the, the, you know, we have a profound shortage of people who can really facilitate uh, meaningful plans, um, people who can translate those plans into a language that complies with the, the act that underpins the NDIS, um, and then people who can uh, know enough, say, about prosthetics or wheelchair use or to really be able to help uh, um, people frame what those goals might be um, so that they have something meaningful to um, have a fund to then consider. So. 
Uh, mind if I, sorry, I just want to add, uh, there was a question earlier about funding, Francis, that you asked, and I think that in my experience working in Victoria um, as a service provider, there's always been a two-tiered approach to prosthetic service provision. You have on one hand, um, you know, third-party insurance, TAC work cover, mm -hmm. um, and then you have public department, which is, was the Victorian Artificial Limb Program, um, and now you're getting NDIS coming sort of more nationally and hoping that we're going to see... An, an alignment so that it, the public, people losing their limbs and being funded under public shouldn't have to be denied the same sort of technolo technology or access to the same technology as someone that's had a car accident. Yeah, and that's always been the case. But is the great fear that as budgets shrink and you know, we're living in a time where a government is determined to produce a budget surplus as a revenue base shrinks and the mm. demands in the NDIS grow bigger and bigger and the cost base of that grows you know, larger and larger, that there are going to be attempts to try to dampen people's expectations of what they should expect the NDIS delivers for them, particularly if they are in need of expensive technology in mm. order to, you know, possibly, live the life that they want to live. Possibly, and I, but I hope not because, you know, I don't, I don't see providing um, sort of this technology is necessarily above and beyond what someone needs. It just is what they need. Yep. You know, it's not... We're not sort of reaching further than what, you know, they should have. It's it's about coming up into 2019, moving into 2020, and accessing the technology that is currently available to people across the world. And, yep. and that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because what it then leads back to, Mandy and Priscilla, is the thing that you both talked about, is the power of... United advocacy amongst people with shared experience to make sure your voice is heard in that conversation? Um, yeah, well, in our quad squad, we've yeah. got, um, I can think of four quadruple amputees that are basically exactly the same length in their amputations and our packages are vastly different mm -hmm. by, by the tens of thousands yeah. of dollars. You know, I've, um, you know, one of our... A quadruple amputee I'm in touch with has a $20,000 package and another quad amp is a $150,000 package. Oh. So I have you, you guys must have had a conversation around what the difference was in, in experiences in, in the interface with the NDIS that delivered such wildly different outcomes. Yeah, it? and it comes down to that uneducated person mm. who did the assessment. Yeah. How, how informed the, lottery. the planners. Yeah, it's a lottery. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So can, yeah. I, can I just pick up, Francis? I think, yeah. you know, one of the challenges... Um, uh, for, for certainly the, the prosthetics community and for um, the NDIS is about how you make um, informed decisions about which technologies you, you do fund. Um, and we actually have very little research that looks at the cost effectiveness of, of lots of the technologies that the NDIS is then having to make decisions about. Um, so, you know, there are, there are certainly studies that look at the cost effectiveness of a, say, microprocessor prosthetic knee. Um, but those have historically been provided to people in our community who um, are, are young and active and, you know, who can walk at a wide variety of speeds. Um, but as the literature develops, what we're increasingly seeing is um, some of the people who have potential to benefit most of that technology are really um, older people who are at risk of falls. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that has to... And once we have good evidence to indicate that absolutely these technologies are cost-effective at mitigating the risk of falls for people, um, I think what, you'll, what we'll see is that that transition will happen. But it's, it's a long history of, you know, new tech, expensive tech uh, is only suitable for you know, young, fit people who um, have capacity to, you know, do lots of different things. 
Let's talk about technology in the future and where this might be going. We talked about 3D printing and we'll talk about that, no doubt, uh, in our question and answer session as well. But what is the next step, Monique? What, what, what are the next bold frontiers? Are we at the point of uh, the $6 million man? Is he, is, is he around the corner, the idea that we... Can... I like to think of the $6 million woman. Well, there was. Yep. Jamie yep. Wagner, I remember well, childhood television show. It's, it's, the bionic it's, man and or woman. And or woman. Um, it's an exciting space. I mean, it's the technology that... Um, is currently available and also the technology that's pending. You know, you see, um, always keep my eye on what's what's coming out of DARPA and, you know, a lot of the research institutes over in the States and, and um, worldwide and it is, it's exciting. I mean, I'm very fortunate, promotion working, we're very closely um, working with the surgeons at the Alfred and um, amazing therapists at Epworth uh, in a program that... Um, we're looking at osseointegration, but also... Well, tell us what that is. Osseointegration. That's been around for a while. It's, um, so basically, it's a surgical procedure that puts an, uh, a titanium implant into the bone, um, and then that acts as a direct attachment for the prosthesis. So you'll, you eliminate the need for a socket. Um, so that's, that's one way. That's one way of attaching the leg uh, or the arm. Um, but we're also looking at targeted, another surgical procedure, which is targeted muscle reinnovation. Um, and that's basically allowing upper limb amputees to get a much more natural or intuitive control of their prosthetic limb. Um, so it's it's a really exciting space. And then also what's coming ahead, you know, coming um, not far away is um, things like targeted sensory re-innovation. So actually getting a sensory feedback from the prosthetic limb. So the technology would have sensors, so you're picking up something. So Mandy doesn't have that perception, doesn't have that sensation, so she's holding something. So to be able to have some form of feedback onto her residual limb, then that gives her some, you know, gives her better control of the, of the prosthetic limb. Do you, does that excite you, those? Well, no, because at the moment I can turn things in a fry pan and I can't feel it. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to be able to turn it off, I suppose. <laughs> there is that, I guess. <laughs> just on the sort of philosophical side of it, do you consider uh, your uh, prosthesis body parts or just Oh, yeah, tools? these are mine. These are me. Yeah? Um, yes, okay. So that, that's an interesting question and that's something I've been um, tossing about at the moment. So to me, when I come home, I take it all, I take the top half off. Yep, I just take off my arms, I leave them on my bed, I take off my hook unless I'm at the computer. Or at the saucepan. Or at the fry pan, yeah. yes. Um, and I put them on to do things, and then I'll take them back off again. So originally when I first got my prosthetic hands, I put them on in the morning and I took them off at night. And I was in them all day, every day. Uh, and then I sort of worked out what, what these things can do. You know, they can't do everything. Um, and I worked out that if I actually took them off, there were some things I could do better. Like what? Um, oh, God. Okay. Like opening a jar is actually easier with my stumps than with these things. That I can open a jar with my hands. I have yet to learn how to open a jar with this. I have no idea how to do it. Um, but, you know, if, if I'm set up like this, I can't really open a jar. So I'll just take them off and I'll do my arms instead and then I'll put them back on again. So, at the moment, I'm using these as tools. Um, originally, I started, they were my body parts. What about you, Fred Priscilla? How do you feel about your leg? Is it because you had such a special relationship with your old leg? Do you have a relationship with this one? 
Um, yeah, it's a great leg. Um, I put it on in the morning and take it off at night. Yeah. Um, if I am sitting watching a movie in the cinema, just like someone might kick off their shoes, I kick my leg off and and then people trip and I say sorry and it happens all the time. Um, but sometimes I do that, long, long drives, I pop my leg off and throw it in the back. I got pulled over once and... And the police officer was like, can you get out of your vehicle? I'm like, just one moment, thank you. I'll just put my leg back on. It was quite funny. Um, but, yeah, it's a part of my body very much. So, um, and for me as well, um, wearing my prosthesis all the time and walking as much as I can really helps with things like phantom pain and phantom yeah. sensation. Um, and I, I really believe in that. The more that you walk, the, the better that you can feel. It's not the same for everybody, but for me it is. So, yeah, it's part of my life. Would you embrace a new technology that merges biology with mechanics? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes people ask, like, oh, wouldn't it be great if your leg could grow back? And I think, oh, what if it grew back the same? I already chopped it <laughs> off once. <laughs> like, I, I just don't know if there's a guarantee on that. Because imagine, I'd be like, oh, my God, i got to cremate it again. But, um, <laughs> so, but it, you know, I think my dream is something like the Terminator leg. If, you know, we're going to get down yeah, into the Instagram land, where it is integrated, it's bionic, and there's, you know, skin over the top and everything like that. I think that that would actually be incredible. And, uh, you know, who knows when and where that will happen, but I do see at some point in our future, however far away that is, how many generations, that that's, you know, something that it might look like. Um, which, you know, there's things now where it's about USBs into bones yeah, yeah. and um, some of the technology about... Um, you know, how they're working on the sensory stuff is fantastic. And I would say Instagram is actually one of the most interesting places to follow technology. So what's going on there for, for people who use and, and live with prosthesis as, you know, it, you know, crucial to their lives? Well, it's amazing. There's, it's, it's an online voice for so many people um, to share their experiences and what they're doing and... Um, and it's also a really great way, social media, just like Mandy was talking about, to meet people and make friends all around the world. Um, I think it's also a really inspiring place for um, cosmesis and, and what's happening. Um, and the technology, just following different hashtags, prosthetics, prosthetic legs, prosthetic technology, you do get some really weird, um, like, movie prosthetic stuff in your feed, though, like uh, weird noses and scars and things that people are doing for sci-fi stuff <laughs> so you just keep scrolling past that um but it is really it's a really great place to see and my poor prosthetist i'm sending him stuff on instagram going <laughs> i want this he's like stop instagramming <laughs> but it's it is a really great place and sometimes the technologies aren't real mm. and it's an idea or it's a prototype but it's exciting that people are out there thinking and inventing and being creative um, and it's a way for also amputees to give that feedback like we were talking about before, what you mentioned where um, engineers, designers, amputees, we all need to talk to each other. Mm. Gone are the days of an engineer developing something and a process making it and you getting it. It's actually now, and social media has opened up that dialogue and the technology is great, yeah. And, and the one thing that it's also done is that I think previously... It seems that if you were incapacitated in any way, um, whether it was with, uh, with your limbs or intellectually or you'd suffered an accident, that um, somehow people presumed your creativity was gone as well, but mm. you were just a patient now and you weren't a whole person. But you've clearly shown in your artwork that that's not the case. Um, and yeah. but what's that done for the people that have 
lived with prosthetics and prostheses to see that you could do this. You are a creative person. That there is a, a way to express who you are and your experience through, you know, something as intimate as, as your prosthesis. I think any open and positive conversation about disability life in general is really important. Um, and and if you can find someone talking specifically about your experience, and in this case, amputees and being a prosthetic wearer is so important. And um, and you know, with um, I'll just hold this up so everyone can see this. This. So this is not my actual artwork, but it's from an exhibition that I curated. This is a Queensland artist, Erica Gray. So I collect old limbs and give them to artists to use as their canvas. I love this guy. He sits in my house near the door and welcomes people and terrifies them. Um, he's very lovely. And uh, But through that process, I mean, I started it as a creative fun thing to do. Um, because sometimes you just need a hobby. Yeah. And, uh, and it turned into this open and positive conversation where lots of people have, you know, expressed gratitude and said, oh, you know, I remember one lady said, you know, I'd never talked to anybody at my work ever about being an amputee. And I think, oh, God, that's all I ever talk about. My leg's over there and I'm <laughs> typing here and, you know, whatever. It's summertime and it's too hot. And uh, But she said she'd worked there for, you know, years and years and had never had a conversation. And someone saw an article in the paper about my exhibition and took it in and showed her. And the first time ever she had a conversation in her workplace. That she was acknowledged that that was her experience. And, um, and I, that just, that's so beautiful because, you know, that... That person's work life, a third of her life, opened up a dialogue about the yeah. rest of her life um, because of a bit of artwork. Yeah. So, and I think that artwork relaxes people. Like I was talking about the $5 piece of fabric. Um, colour changes people, it relaxes people, it opens the conversation. Being louder and prouder, um, people are less afraid mm. of saying the wrong thing. Perhaps, because I think sometimes people hold back and taboos built out of fear of, of saying or asking the wrong thing. And Mandy, I mean, these are amazing, uh, the, the ones you've just got. How long have you had these ones for? These... Oh, about three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but how, how, it's been a journey for you to get to a point where you, you felt like you could walk in the world w with these on. So how does it feel now to, to be at that point where you, you, know, you can... On good days, I feel comfortable with it, yeah. and on bad days, I get very angry. Yeah? Yeah. Angry about what? Um, people staring. I just, I'm yet to sort Still. of step above their stares and go, I'm okay with all this. So, you know, we were at the market with the kids all of a week ago, and um, I had, I've got a white pair of, of these covers, and I had them on, and you can't miss them. They're like, they glow in the dark almost. And everybody stared. And so, you know, some of the stairs are comfortable stairs. You know, people sort of go, oh, wow, look, look then. And other stairs, they're just like, oh, you know. The reaction that you get from people is so varied. And if you're not in the right headspace, to deal with that reaction can be really difficult. Hmm. Um, you know, if you're having a bad day, like, you know, yeah. I can tell you, pulling up my underpants is a real challenge sometimes. And that can just ruin you. Like, just, you know, to, to have something that seems so simple can be such a frustration and then you go out and there's people staring. It's like, oh, you just want to just growl at them. Um, so really, it's, it's an ongoing day-to-day -day kind of But challenge. on your good days, yeah. what do you dream of? What do you hope for? Oh, I don't know. I haven't got that far. <laughs> uh, I have learnt that my life um, 
literally six years ago. Sorry, my, six years ago, my life changed in an instant. Yep. So I don't really look very far ahead anymore. Yeah, um, I can look for look to Christmas at the moment. Yep. That'll do me. <laughs> yeah. One thing I always say to the quadruple amputees, um, they always say, you know, my last surgery is next week. You know, I'm, I'm finished up, my last surgery is next week. And I always say to them, no, it's not. You're going to have this for the rest of your life. This is going to be an ongoing thing. Um, so, you know, I, I don't look that far ahead anymore. It's just this week's doing really well. <laughs> That'll do. That'll do. That'll do. <laughs> Indeed it will. Thanks for listening. This is our final Bold Thinking event for 2019. For more podcasts like this, search for Clever Conversations wherever you get your podcasts.